Welcome to Season 2 of Museum Secrets. I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and every week I'll be taking you behind the scenes at the Ashmolean. There are a million objects here in the museum, each with its own hidden story. Come on in as we track down the weird and wonderful among them to give us a bite-sized pick-me-up in these challenging times. Last week, we joined Anne Van Camp as she lifted the lids of some unusual boxes in the print room. But she's not the only curator who's fascinated by boxes. This week, we've come across Jim Harris, who has another tiny box for us to peer into. Despite its miniature size, it's stuffed with stories. Over to Jim to tell us more. The museum is full of boxes. Perhaps the entire Ashmolean might be conceived as one gigantic box into which have fallen all the treasures of the world. Our galleries are a succession of cunningly crafted boxes in steel and glass, boxes to show off our treasures and boxes to protect them, to remind us that they are indeed treasures. And in those boxes are an infinity of others, boxes made for every purpose, from keeping safe our ancestors' earthly remains to keeping safe the surgical tools that might have kept them safe in life. Boxes for wedding dresses, boxes for cutlery, boxes for snuff and boxes for sewing. Exquisite, tiny boxes set with alabaster and agate for exquisite, tiny scissors, combs and mirrors. Boxes in wood, bone and ivory, porcelain and stone. Embroidered boxes, chased boxes, carved boxes, leather boxes for silver cups, silver boxes for steel pins, steel boxes for the money to buy them all. Boxes for hiding and boxes for the revealing of secrets. And out of the way, there are more boxes still. Tiny, clear plastic boxes, impeccably standardised, inside which are tucked tiny, vulnerable fragments of long ago, nestled in acid-free tissue, their unstable alloys and compounds laid to rest in as secure, inert and peaceful environment as we can provide, while they wait for the next researcher or student or faculty member or curator to rouse them gently from their slumber. In the basement, and I promise this is true, there is a cardboard box full of boxes and labelled Boxes for Gold Boxes. But the box on its own is seldom the thing. The box is never as exciting as the promise of what it contains. We open boxes to find out what's inside them, and sometimes the only thing we find is a story. Or in the case of one small round box of around 1800, many stories. The box is very small, a flat disc, about three centimetres high and eight centimetres in diameter. It's made of dark, glossy tortoise shell, polished to a near translucent shine. It's near blackness, glowing, the more you look, with rich reds and ambers. The box is edged and bound in gold, unadorned with decoration, complementing the smooth sleekness of the tortoise shell. Its first story, then, is a material one. Here are the riches of empire, the exotic produce of the warm seas of the Caribbean, the Pacific, the Indian Ocean, and the gold that that produce brought into the hands of the English aristocracy and gentry. It's a story that infects a great deal of the material culture of the 18th and 19th centuries, from the grandest of country houses filled with the spoils of the Grand Tour, paid for 
by the riches of the colonies, to the shell and ivory trinkets of a lady's dressing table, where, as Pope puts it in The Rape of the Lock, the tortoise here and the elephant unite. It's inside the box, though, that its own private stories can be found. Opening the lid reveals the tortoise shell, dulled and scratched from use, perhaps as a container for pins or powder, filled and refilled, worn from use. Here is the workaday box, the useful box, the box whose contents are really the point. But on the inside of the lid is a paper label, inscribed in a 19th century hand that reads, Sophia Schutz, married her cousin, William Schutz, Colonel, painted by Plimmer. And now, suddenly, the box is full of stories and full of mysteries, for there is no painting and no Sophia until you realise that the lid itself is in two parts and hinged so that just the top section can also be opened. And when that is lifted, the whole thing springs to life. For there, in an oval cartouche, is the portrait of a young woman gazing out in three-quarter profile, dressed in white muslin in the style of the late 18th century, her loosely curled hair held back by a simple band of the same material, against a background of white clouds with a suggestion of blue sky. It's a startling reveal, but not so startling as what's in the part of the lid hinged behind her, for there, under glass, in a circular gold frame, is her hair. And not plaited and arranged, as might be expected in an object like this, but tangled and matted, as if stuffed in a hurry, some strands still poking out from under the frame with what appears to be glue, marring the clarity of the glass. It's a striking contrast to the simple precision and beauty of the rest of the box. Something has happened here. We'll return to that. But the first thing that's happened, of course, is that Sophia has had her picture painted by Mr Plimmer. Mr Nathaniel Plimmer was a not inconsiderable painter in the late 18th century. After growing up in Somerset, the son of a clockmaker, he and his brother Andrew ran away from life as clockmakers' apprentices and lived in Wales with a travelling community before making their way to London and eventually to training with the fashionable painter and royal academician Richard Cosway. Nathaniel himself showed at the Royal Academy and gained a reputation as a portraitist, making pictures of the agreeable sons and daughters of the agreeable English gentry. So how then does our Sophia fit into the agreeable English gentry? Who is the lady in the tortoiseshell box? The Schutzes, as the name suggests, had their origins beyond these shores. Sophia's great-grandfather, Louis Justus Sinholt von Schutz, arrived in England in the 1690s as part of the embassy of the Elector of Hanover. In the early 18th century, after the Elector was invited to assume the English throne, the family stuck around and dug in. Sophia's great-uncle, Augustus, became master of the robes and keeper of the privy purse to King George II, acquiring the great house of Shotover, just outside Oxford. Sophia's branch of the Schutzes burrowed into the life and service of their adopted nation more modestly, as soldiers and landowners. Her father, Francis Matthew Schutz, married into a long-established East Anglian family, the Bacons, into whose country estate at Gillingham in Norfolk, he then settled as the archetypal English country gent. 
So archetypal, in fact, that Hogarth painted his portrait, and not flatteringly, but rather vomiting into a chamber pot in his bed after a hard night on the tiles. You can see it at the Norwich Castle Museum. So here is another story to add to the rich materials of the box and the fashionable artist who adorned it, the story of that most transplantable of all flowers, the European aristocratic family. Sophia's family, though, was not all Schutz, of course. Her mother, who commissioned Hogarth to paint her husband in the shame of his overindulgence as a kind of cautionary warning, came from longer established English stock. The Bacons had been at Gillingham since the early 17th century, and here is yet one more story to come out of the box. For the Ashmolean has recently acquired a great silver gilt cup made from the great seal of Queen Mary, which was given to Sophia's nine greats-grandfather, Sir Nicholas Bacon, by Elizabeth I as Lord Keeper of her own seal. Through him, Sophia's eight greats uncle was the statesman and scientist Francis Bacon, and her little tortoiseshell box then hints at another strand in a long story of royal service and its concomitant benefits of land ownership and social prestige. At the time of her birth then, in 1764, Sophia was set for a life of comfort. And as a young woman, it was a life lived not sequestered in the sleepy Norfolk countryside, but in London's fashionable West End, where the Dukes of Portland were rapidly building those streets north of Oxford Street, Harley Street, Welbeck Street, that were eventually to be settled by such a great density of doctors. Sophia lived in Welbeck Street, and from what we know of the books in her library, she was a young woman of impeccable virtue, but occasionally racy taste. She appears frequently in the subscription lists for books published in the 1780s and 90s, books funded by their readers. She bought, for example, the three-volume edition of Mr. Milan's Sermons for Children of 1789 and the Reverend George Haggett's Sermons to Country Congregations of 1796. But she was also a subscriber to Lucy Peacock's The Adventures of the Six Princesses of Babylon in Their Travels to the Temple of Virtue of 1785 and to Edward Jones's Musical and Poetical Relics of the Welsh Bards of 1794. And so the box gives us our next story, that of a young English gentlewoman at her leisure between London and Norfolk, the very image of a character from Austin, but also, like the box itself, the very image of a marketable commodity. For if one of the priorities of the English gentry in the 18th century was the maintenance of appearances, London in season, Norfolk out of season, the right books, the right company, so too was the maintenance of fortune. And it was to maintain fortune that Sophia in 1796, at the age of 32, was married, as the box tells us, to her cousin. Keeping it in the family, William Schutz was older than Sophia by 20 odd years, he had had a distinguished career in the Coldstream Guards, having been commissioned as an ensign in 1754 before rising to the rank of colonel in 1780. He served in the American War of Independence before finally selling his commission to one Thomas Thurriton for £5,000 in 1782. The 5000 was payable 
as an annuity until William's death. But as the youngest son of Sophia's great uncle, Augustus, the reuniting of two branches of the Schutz family made eminent financial sense. And so it was that on May the 2nd, 1796, Sophia was wedded to William at Kilverston near Thetford in Norfolk. Like I said, keeping it in the family. It's the fortune, though, that's the problem with this box. There's always a problem with 18th century money, and the problem is that it doesn't come from nowhere, and that like so many pretty things, this box hides something far uglier. William's father, Augustus, seeking to consolidate his position as a courtier and a gentleman, needed money of his own, and he found it in a marriage alliance with one Penelope Madden, Penelope was the sister of a soldier and future MP, Colonel Martin Madden, an aunt to a long line of distinguished clergy and servicemen. She was also the daughter of one of the richest and most successful slaveholding plantation owners in Nevis in the West Indies, at the very centre of the English triangular trade, shipping people from West Africa for sale into bondage. The commodities on display here, then, are not just the tortoiseshell and gold, but the human lives that paid for them. It's a telling lesson. As we wrestle with the origins of so many of our collections, we must find ways to talk about the material produce of our culture in all its craft and beauty, whilst properly acknowledging the appalling injustices and crimes that enabled it to be made. The story of this box, irrespective of its alluring sheen of quality and polite polish, is as dark and blemished as the dulled, scratched tortoise shell of its interior. We serve our collections ill when we forget these things or ignore them, and it's fitting then that the last story of the little box is the story of its forgetting. Because we know that one day someone took the box and saw the hair, and wanted very badly to touch it. The scenario isn't hard to imagine. A child at a parent's dressing table, or left alone in the best room where the beautiful things are kept, the box opened, and the picture gazed upon, the gold frame of the plaited hair picked at, the hair tumbling out, unravelled, impossible to put right, the glue fetched, and Sophia's hair tousled and tangled, hurriedly, roughly, pushed back into place. And somewhere in all that, Sophia stopped being Sophia and started being just another forgotten lady. She died at only 41 years old, childless, in 1805. Her will records the bequest of some of her best things, her diamond earrings, to her sister, along with other trinkets. And so the box became another trinket eventually to be sold and collected and put on the dressing table of someone entirely unconnected to Schutz or Bacon or Gillingham or Welbeck Street. After that, it was just beautiful and valuable. Her picture was important and valuable, but she was just a pretty lady and her hair was just hair, too prosaic to be bothered about but too fascinating under the gaze of a bored child to be left alone. For every memory a box might contain, another is lost. 
But this is why museums love boxes and it's why curators work with them. For every time we look inside, even in a box that seems empty and forlorn, damaged and interfered with, there remains the possibility of finding something new. So we keep looking at our boxes and we keep opening them. And as we do, as we listen to their stories, so they fill up again and we close them and we remember and we keep them safe. Thank you to Jim. And if you want to take a look at Sophia's little tortoiseshell box with its hidden portrait, just follow the link in the podcast notes. Join me next week for another bite-sized secret from the Ashmolean. And don't forget to rate, review and share this podcast. It helps other listeners find us. Thank you.